Lee Johnson was the very first person to take Monsanto to trial, but now in the United States, we have over 100,000 people who have sued Monsanto, alleging that their non-Hodgkin lymphoma is caused by their exposure to the Roundup products. Hi, I'm Anna LaPay, and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media, where we talk with authors of some of the most interesting books at the intersections of food, politics, and culture. Today, I am delighted to bring back journalist Carrie Gillum to talk about her new book, The Monsanto Papers. A more than 20-year veteran journalist with 17 years at Reuters, Carrie Gillum's new book is a follow-on to her first, Whitewash, about Monsanto and its herbicide glyphosate. It centers the story of Lee Johnson, a California school groundskeeper who developed cancer after being exposed on the job to Monsanto's glyphosate-based herbicides. The first plaintiff to sue the agrochemical giant, now owned by German company Bayer, Lee Johnson would not be the only one. There are now more than 100,000 cases filed against the company, farmers, gardeners, groundskeepers, and more. Pouring over 80,000 pages of exhibits and documents, and a 50,000-page trial transcript, so we didn't have to. Gillum helps us see the forest for all these trees in this page-turner of a book, the story of decades of doubt, denialism, and deflection that allowed a toxic, cancer-causing chemical to rise to the ranks of the most used herbicide in the world and the legal advocates trying to hold the company to account in the absence of government regulations doing so. Carrie, it is really wonderful to have you back on Real Food Reads. Thanks for joining us. It's really good to be here, Anna. Thanks for having me. So since this book is about the long and winding road of the herbicide sold on the market as Roundup and Ranger Pro, among other names, can we just start there with what these pesticides are and why are they so worrisome? Sure. So glyphosate <laughs> is the word of the day, right? This is the active ingredient in these weed killers. Uh, most people are familiar with Roundup as a brand, as a popular product, and uh, they use it to kill weeds in their yard or around their garden. Farmers use Roundup products, uh, Ranger Pro and other related brands, to kill weeds in their farm fields and cities and towns and school districts. It has become so ubiquitous in our world today that our government scientists have found glyphosate residues in, in uh, our rainfall. Uh, it's commonly found as residues in food that we feed our families. It's in the water that we drink. So this chemical and what the science tells us that it can do to our health and to our environment, you know, is really a, a critically important issue. Uh, it's not very sexy uh, to talk about pesticides and to talk about glyphosate, but uh, it, it is unfortunately very meaningful to our health. So in, in my work and in my first book, and then in this second book, we look at these issues and in this new book in particular, we look at the story of one man, Lee Johnson, and what his exposure to this chemical uh, meant for him and his, his health. Great. So let's go there because this story, as I mentioned in the introduction, it really is a, a page turner, which I don't think you can say necessarily about a lot of books about pesticides. And it's really personal, really emotional. I found myself getting quite emotional reading it as you tell the story of Lee Johnson and weave that into this larger legal battle and then even larger meta story about glyphosate usage and uh, what we can do about it. So can you talk about who Lee Johnson is and a little bit more about his story uh, and, and how you came to know him? Yeah. So Lee Johnson is just quite a, 
phenomenal character. Um, as I came to know him, he is an average guy, you know, as a father of two young boys in his mid forties, had a hard, uh, childhood growing up, struggled, didn't graduate college. Um, but came to be, you know, a successful middle income father and husband with a career as a groundskeeper for a school district in uh, Northern California and was really proud of the life that he had created for his family. But part of his job was spraying these glyphosate-based weed killers, Monsanto's, Ranger Pro, and other products around the school grounds. And he tried to wear protective gear, as you're supposed to do with pesticides, but really had been led to believe that these products were particularly safe. And when he had an accident and was doused in the weed killer at one point, he didn't worry about it too much because Monsanto's weed killers were almost safe enough to drink, you know, was sort of the saying that the company always promoted. But he soon developed a type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma called mycosis fungoides, uh, which is a type of cancer that is just really horrible. It manifests in the skin and just ravages a person from head to toe and literally did that to Lee causing immense pain and immense, immense suffering and leading to a terminal diagnosis. So the story follows him from before his cancer and then through that journey and then into what he decided was a way to make his suffering meaningful, which was to try to hold Monsanto accountable and to take the company to trial. Yeah, and what I was struck in reading your book, Carrie, is again, I mentioned the intro, you know, your journalistic strategy to really follow the lead, follow the papers, you know, dig into what came out of this legal process, which is incredible amount of internal Monsanto documents that became now public because of discovery. You mentioned uh, when you were talking about what was Lee's impression of this pesticide before that it was, you know, safe enough to drink. No one should be worried about it. What are some of the examples you like to share where you discovered and, and his lawyers discovered some of the most egregious spin tactics that the industry used to shape the science and the story of this pesticide? Yeah, I mean, that's really the, the foundation to all of this is that this company for 40 years has been deceiving consumers and regulators and lawmakers, you know, farmers, people like Lee who use this chemical has been actively working to manipulate the scientific record about the safety of this chemical or the lack thereof. And that is made very clear through thousands of pages of documents, many that uh, I had obtained before the litigation and that became the source material for my first book. And then the additional tens of thousands of pages that came out during the litigation and I mean, there's so many examples. One many people may have heard of is ghostwriting. Monsanto itself, the scientists discuss uh, ghostwriting scientific papers to promote the safety of the chemical. Uh, they talk about funding front groups using third party organizations to both promote the safety of this chemical, lobby lawmakers and regulators, and to attack people like myself or other scientists or journalists or anyone who was pointing to problems or evidence that indicated health problems with this chemical. Uh, and they spent literally millions and millions of dollars on these secret campaigns to discredit legitimate independent science and to promote their ghost-written manipulated science. 
and they did this over decades. You see that very clearly laid out in the documents. And you know, there have been so many victims of this. Uh, Lee Johnson was the very first person to take Monsanto to trial, but now in the United States, we have over 100,000 people who have sued Monsanto, alleging that their non-Hodgkin lymphoma is caused by their exposure to the Roundup products. I wonder if you could just explain for folks who don't understand how and why there was this spike in the growth of the sales of this herbicide, how that connects to Monsanto, which is now owned by Bayer, but how it connects to their business plan, to their promotion of genetically engineered seeds. You know, what's that connection there that people who might only have seen Roundup at Home Depot and used it, you know, on the edge of their lawn? How are people to understand why has it become so ubiquitous? Right. Well, that's such a great question. You're right. I mean, GMO crops are linked uh, very closely to glyphosate, to this pesticide. And that is because back in the 1980s, Monsanto was working on uh, GMO crops. And in the 1990s, they brought to market the very first genetically engineered crop. And what was it designed to do? Not to be more nutritious or not to grow better, you know, with less water or anything like that but it was designed to be sprayed directly with glyphosate and tolerate that not to die. This was because Monsanto's patent on glyphosate was expiring in the year 2000 and Monsanto wanted, we see from their internal records, they wanted a way to hold on to market share, make sure that generic glyphosate products didn't take over the market. And so it was quite ingenious. They could develop what they called Roundup Ready crops, Roundup Ready seeds, and sell those to farmers as a package deal, plant our Roundup Ready corn and soy and cotton and canola and sugar beets and spray it directly with our Roundup herbicide. Your weeds in your fields will die and your crops will not. And farmers loved it. I mean, it made their lives so much easier. And, you know, bonus, it's safe enough to drink. It has no impact on people and pets and is environmentally friendly and all of these wonderful things. So, with the release of these genetically engineered crops that could be sprayed directly with glyphosate, we saw the use of glyphosate skyrocket and it became the world's most widely used herbicide. But you went from just, you know, I think that it was 25 million pounds or so used annually in the United States back in the 1990s to close to 300 million pounds used every year in the United States around 2015. So you see there was a great growth and magnitude. And that's why we see so much glyphosate now in our creeks and rivers and in air samples even, and why we see it in our food and why people who get their urine tested looking for pesticides, which isn't necessarily a large group of people, but <laughs> glyphosate is frequently found in urine samples. I was struck reading the book as you described these internal documents that you found that had you in the story that were internal documents that were discussing how the industry was going to respond to your book, Whitewash, what they were trying to do to discredit you. Uh, I wonder if you want to just say a few words about what that was like to read those documents uh, and what that means for journalists like you that are trying to unearth these kinds of stories. Yeah, I mean, it was shocking, but it wasn't. I guess I had known that Monsanto was working to discredit me, that they were working to undermine me, that trying to shut me down, shut me up, you know, discredit the book. It was pretty obvious when I was at Reuters from 1998 until 2015. 
those last several years, they worked really hard on my editors to try to get me pulled off of the beat. They didn't like that I was writing about the science showing harm associated with glyphosate. And, you know, I knew they were funding these front groups, but seeing a spreadsheet with my name on it, Carrie Gillum book and the spreadsheet and the action plan and all of the different strategies that they wanted to employ and the use of a consulting firm and all of that to try to tear me down, I think was eye-opening. And my main thought then and, and today is, my goodness, if they would do that for me, you know, one little gal in Kansas who writes a book or two, you know, imagine what they're doing to these scientists who are just trying to do good, thorough, independent research. Yeah, I mean, some of their tactics were also quite pedestrian. It was like, let's post negative book reviews on Amazon. <laughs> and, I was like, <laughs> and they did. And they engineered it over. We watched it unfold. They weren't too smart. They were using third parties and some of their third parties plotted it on Twitter and Twitter conversations. And then they all went and hit Amazon, you know, in one weekend, let's go hit Amazon with one star reviews and take that book down. And unfortunately, the reviews all kind of sounded the same. And Amazon saw it as fraudulent and took a bunch of them down. But <laughs> right. Well, I want to dive into one of the key threads of this book. As I mentioned, it's this legal thriller. And I felt like I was learning so much about Monsanto, its internal operations, its spin, but also so much about how lawyers are kind of stepping into the vacuum that gets left when regulators aren't pushing back against companies like Monsanto. And I thought it was really interesting in hearing the story of this team that took on, again, we're talking about a multi-billion dollar company um, and a multi-billion dollar product, that they were lawyers that actually didn't have, it seemed like, much experience with food or agriculture issues. They definitely had backgrounds battling big companies like oil industry or medical device litigation. But I'm just curious from your perspective, if that helped them or hindered them in any way and you know what their sort of learning curve was as they were understanding Monsanto and this product, or if you feel like there were so many parallels with the other legal work they had done. Well, that's interesting. I, I did see them in action, you know, from the outset and, um, you know, was with lawyer Brent Wisner, for instance, for the first time when he met his first client in person. And I interviewed her. She's the first chapter of my first book. But, you know, early on, a lot of them didn't know how to spell glyphosate, didn't know how to say it correctly, didn't know the history. And I did think to myself naively, I think initially, boy, they're, <laughs> they're going to have a hard time going up against Monsanto. But learned quickly that, you know, it's not about if you understand the history of agricultural chemicals, it's about how they put together a case. And they very clearly knew how to put together this case. And they did it remarkably. And, you know, I've covered court cases as a journalist for years and years and years, but never really had the kind of access or followed a case for several years like I did here. And to see what these lawyers went through, to see the personal financial risk that they took, putting millions of dollars on the line, taking out loans, leveraging their assets, you know, because they pay for everything up front. They pay for all the expert witnesses. They pay for all the discovery. They pay for all the travel, you know, everything. No client pays a dime. And if they lose, they're just out that money. And of course they reap hefty fees if they win, which is controversial, but really without their work, as you mentioned, and as I say in my book, 
the regulators are not holding these companies accountable. The lawmakers are not doing it. There's no one else out there. And that's not the way it should be. But it's the best system we have right now, unfortunately, are these mass tort attorneys who take these big companies, billions of dollars in assets and strength to court and try to hold them accountable. So Carrie, I'd love to hear your take. There's so much in this book about the strategies that that Lee's lawyers used in this case. And I wonder if you want to lift up one or two of the things that you think they did best that made their case really strong. And and spoiler alert for listeners, we will tell you (laughs) how the uh, jury ruled on this verdict. We'll get to that in a second. So you can plug your ears if you don't want to know. But just curious if you wanted to lift up, you know, a theme or two that you felt like was such a strong element of how they argued this case. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'd found the whole thing fascinating, the tactics, and they and they are very strategic from the very first meeting that they had with Monsanto's lawyers requesting discovery documents to what exactly what documents they requested, who they requested them from, how they did depositions. I mean, everything was done with an angle that would be revealed later at trial. But I think the thing, you know, that it was certainly the most dramatic was the one lawyer, Brent Wisner, who found a loophole in a protective order. Monsanto wanted very much to keep these internal records and emails and text messages and things that were quite damning, and they wanted to keep them secret. They had to give them to the plaintiff's lawyers. They had to give them to Lee's lawyers through court order, but they wanted to keep them sealed so that journalists like myself couldn't see them or members of the public. And so the judge issued a protective order and it had certain criteria that each side had to meet in order to keep these documents sealed. And one of these lawyers for Lee's side found a loophole. And the way that he sort of led Monsanto's lawyers into this trap in which he would then be able to take advantage of the loophole was just fascinating. And you know how it all unspooled at midnight, one night, about a year before the trial. I think was just quite fascinating. And I don't want to give more of it away than that, but uh, it was a very gutsy move on his part. And suffice to say, Monsanto was furious. Yeah. And it's as a result, as you're saying, we, the public, you, the journalist have access to these documents now. And it makes for really fascinating reading. You quote from a lot of these documents. Again, they're available publicly now. And one of the things that you really see is the coordinated effort from the company to respond to what was unfolding just around the same time, which was the the ruling from our global highest level international agency on cancer that had ruled that uh, glyphosate uh, was a probable carcinogen. And the implications for that ruling in this case were huge. And you, again, in these internal documents, as you show, was the company maneuvering to figure out a strategy to to respond to that through more obfuscation versus really any soul searching about the impact of their product? Yeah, they really did. I mean, what they did to this agency, this is an arm of the World Health Organization, and it's the International Agency for Research on Cancer, and their job solely is to come together and to analyze years and years of published peer-reviewed literature on different substances that are suspected to potentially be carcinogenic and to assess the hazard of these and to issue a classification. And they looked at glyphosate because it was so widely used because there was so much epidemiology and toxicology literature linking it to cancer, particularly non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And they determined these were independent scientists at the top of their field brought in from around the world 
with no ties to any company or any activist group. And they determined that it was classified as a probable human carcinogen, according to the weight of evidence, with an association of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And they issued this classification. And, you know, they do this all the time and it's rather dull work and nobody ever pays much attention to them. I mean, from the media or the general population, uh, they're scientists and regulators look to their work and other scientists, but it generally doesn't make headlines around the world. The glyphosate classification did, and Monsanto was ready with an attack plan. We saw the attack plan in their internal documents. Interestingly enough, they put it together before IARC decided glyphosate was a probable human carcinogen. Monsanto discussed internally that they expected such a classification. And then they set about trying to tear down these individual scientists. And, you know, it really was discouraging to see it. And it really rattled these scientists, as I said, who were quite accomplished and quite respected until Monsanto went after them. And, you know, it even at one point, Monsanto involved U.S. lawmakers and was able to get a congressional hearing in which our House of Representatives uh, looked at stripping funding from the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which, you know, to me, I find completely outrageous with 40% of Americans expected to get cancer in their lifetimes. And our lawmakers are looking to strip funding from this agency because Monsanto tells them to. Yeah. And again, the amount of evidence that we have about how Monsanto did this in those documents is is really overwhelming. Um, I want to jump to the verdict, the jury, what they found. And I should say this, this case was being heard in San Francisco, as you may have heard Carrie mention, she's based in Kansas. So I know, I don't know if you were in the courtroom uh, when the judge read the jury's verdict. I wasn't able to get into the courtroom in time to hear it in person. I was actually listening to it live while I was driving in my car on my way to pick my kids up from summer camp. And I pulled over on the side of the road as I listened to the judge reading the verdict. I, I wonder where you were when you heard the verdict and what was your reaction? <laughs> well, so yes, no, I was not there. I was in Australia. <laughs> the trial was quite lengthy. It began in June and the jury decision came down on August the 10th, which was a Friday, if you remember. And I had been asked to come to Australia to speak about glyphosate and Monsanto um, and about my first book, Whitewash. So I had to leave the trial and go to Australia and I was monitoring it too, though. I was watching the verdict being read live as well. And at the same time, I was receiving text messages from the lawyers involved and so watched it as well and just couldn't believe it. I actually didn't believe that they could climb that hill and actually get a, a unanimous jury decision that one man, one cancer, one chemical which is such a hard thing to prove, right? Because we are all exposed to so many things. And it's always so hard to determine exactly what might cause a specific cancer in a specific individual. But they did it. And the jury came back with $250 million in punitive damages because they were so outraged at the evidence of Monsanto's deception. 
Yeah, the verdict was amazing. And I remember talking to a friend who was in the courtroom and afterward got to meet some of the jurors. And she said she was talking with one of the jurors, uh, an older woman who uh, kind of put her arm around this friend of mine and said, you know, honey, I just can't wait to go home, pour myself a glass of wine and Google Monsanto. Because, <laughs> of course, right, as you write in the book, a lot of these jurors had never heard of the company before. You know, there was a whole jury selection process that ensured that the people weren't from the company side. They didn't want anybody with any preconceived notions about this company. Exactly. Exactly. And they weren't allowed to do anything. They weren't allowed to follow the news. They weren't allowed to talk amongst themselves about the testimony of the day until it was time for deliberations. In The book takes you inside that jury deliberation room and... Um, it was it was just fascinating the way that it all came together, I, I think. I hope. <laughs> so, Carrie, where does it go from here? I mean, I know the book is really very much just about this case, but of course, we're all curious about what is the real world implication of this. It was a huge ruling, but I also know the company appealed it. Has Lee seen any of that money? Um, I was just, you know, had a lot of questions about its impact, impact on Lee and his family and, and where we go from here. So yes, so you mentioned that Bayer bought Monsanto. It's noteworthy that Bayer, uh, the German company, bought Monsanto in June of 2018, right before the Lee Johnson trial started. And so the liability rests with Bayer now. Monsanto's chief executive has gone off and retired and taken his millions. So it rests with Bayer. And Bayer has been fighting this. There were two subsequent trials involving other plaintiffs. They lost both of those as well. They appealed Johnson's verdict. They've appealed the verdicts in the other trials as well. They lost all the appeals to date. They have been successful in reducing the verdicts. The plaintiffs were awarded huge punitive damage awards in all three trials because, again, the evidence of Monsanto's deception is just so egregious. The last trial that was held, the jurors awarded $2 billion dollars punitive damages. So the trial judges and the appellate judges have all reduced those awards pretty significantly. Lee Johnson finally did get paid. He got paid after my book went to print. <laughs> just after that, he got just a tiny fraction of what the jury had wanted him to receive and what they had ordered in their verdict. And lawyers took a big chunk of that. Taxes take a big chunk of that. But He's still alive. Uh, he wasn't expected to live this long. His own attorneys thought that he might die before trial. Monsanto's attorneys predicted he would live until November of 2019. He is still alive. He's still suffering, but you know he's with his boys, and we talk on a regular basis. And you know he's he's an impressive guy. Yeah, and he's he's still alive to to see what comes across in your book, which was his desire to make a difference. I mean, I know he traveled to Hawaii thanks to uh, community groups there who wanted to offer him and his family some rest and and relaxation, but also to offer him a platform to share his story. And in the wake of that visit, uh, Hawaii schools decided to ban glyphosate use on their campuses, and he got to witness that impact. And I'm sure there's many other impacts that he's seen. I'm curious if you can talk about this broader story of, of where we go from here in terms of this weed killer. I was just 
in Home Depot not too recently and I saw uh, Roundup on the shelves. I mean, are there warning labels now on Roundup and Ranger Pro? And are there efforts to phase out their use or even to ban them in municipalities or, or in schools? Yeah, so that's really interesting. And and so Bear, they decided they didn't want any more trials. You know, three was enough. <laughs> three losses <laughs> was enough. They have agreed to pay $11 billion to settle the U.S. litigation that's existing. And now they are trying to determine how to ward off future litigation because, of course, they want to keep selling their product. They really don't want to put a warning label on it saying that it causes cancer. But, of course, if they don't do that, they will still be sued. They expect to continue to be sued. So they're trying to wrestle with that. And what they have just put forward that I just wrote about a week or so ago is a new plan in which they would pay about $2 billion into a fund. And this would cover people who've been using Roundup but haven't yet developed non-Hodgkin lymphoma, or maybe they have, but they haven't filed a lawsuit yet. And this would be a way to try to accommodate those people and they're going to send out notices to Home Depots and everywhere that Roundup is sold and to farmers and that sort of thing. And they are talking about putting something on the label now. They don't want to put language that says it can cause cancer, but they're thinking maybe they can put something on there that provides a link to a web page that talks about the science. So they're, they're trying to figure that out. And so despite this litigation, despite really, as you put it, three terrible losses, despite the science, despite the paper trail of deception, they can't be forced to put a warning label on their products? Or They certainly could if the EPA was going to stand up to Monsanto and do that. We've seen, you know, for more than 40 years that the EPA is not going to do that. And we have, again, in the book, you know, lots of internal documents and records from EPA showing efforts to say to Monsanto, hey, we think you should put a warning label or this looks dangerous. And we see Monsanto push back and we see them bring in political pressure and we see the EPA fold time and time again. What we're seeing right now, and I've just reported this as well in The Guardian not too long ago, Mexico has said that it plans to ban glyphosate um, once it phased out by 2024. Thailand tried to do that a couple of years ago what Bayer, Monsanto's owner, has been doing is enlisting the help of the State Department and other U.S. officials to put the screws on these other countries to intimidate them so that they will not ban glyphosate. Thailand backed away and decided not to ban glyphosate after the U.S. pressured it. And Mexico is still right now holding tight, um, saying it will go ahead with the ban, but we're not sure about that. But many other countries have. Germany and France, they've all said they're going to ban glyphosate. But right now, the U.S. is continuing to embrace it. Hmm. Well, I really cannot thank you enough for this incredible book and your incredible reporting, Carrie. And I just want to close out with one final question. Uh, But I wonder if you want, in your last few words, to say anything about what we as activists, as voters, as eaters uh, can do to respond, to respond to what you unearth in both this book and your previous book, Whitewash. Gosh, and I'm so impressed with everything you do. I mean, you know, I think what you do and all of these different groups and organizations trying to raise awareness, having podcasts like this, you know, reaching out to either on a community level or a national level or state level to try to educate our leaders. Um, this really does need to be front 
and center. These pesticides, glyphosate is only one, that are used so regularly in our food and in our environment, they're contributing to cancers and reproductive health harms and a whole array of problems that we are setting up for our future generations. So food policy needs to be as important as foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. encourage everybody to educate yourself and, and speak out and speak up and protect our, our kids and protect their futures. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Carrie. Really appreciate all that you do. And we only select books for this podcast that we really ourselves enjoy reading. And I will certainly say this again about this book. It really is a page turner. I've read it and I don't know, two sittings. I think I read the whole thing. I was just just gripped by the story. So thank you again for clearly the incredible amount of research that went into writing it. Really appreciate that. Oh, you're so kind. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Real Food Reads podcast. Join the book club and find out about future book selections, author interviews, and other resources at realfoodmedia.org. To listen to Real Food Reads and our sister podcast, Foodtopias, look for Real Food Media wherever you get your podcasts. You can support our work by leaving us a rating or a review wherever you listen. Thank you so much.